Welcome to The Launch, the podcast sponsored by Tandem Launch, where we talk about tech, startups, entrepreneurship, and everything in between. We give you the inside scoop on building a startup, capital fundraising, the entrepreneurial journey, with both funny and impactful stories. This podcast is for budding entrepreneurs, ecosystem players, industry folks, venture capitalists looking for deals, students considering a career in the startup world, or anyone with a curiosity in Deepak. If you have a research background in tech and always wanted to build your own startup, then check out our website, www.tanumlaunch.com, or hit us up on LinkedIn. Let's build the future together. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Launch Podcast, sponsored by Tanum Launch. I'm your host, Bobby Bidochka, and today joining me is the CEO of Tanum Launch, Helga Sietzit. Thanks so much for being here, Helga. Thank you for having me and doing all this great work. So let's just start off with uh, your backstory a little bit, and then we will get into talking about contested technologies. Uh, sure. Well, I've... Uh... I've enjoyed a, a, a very uh, uh, interesting journey, I think, uh, in, in my career. So I, uh, I'm originally from Germany. I came to Canada to do my undergrad, uh, having no idea really about startups, technology, venture capital, any, any of the stuff I do today. Um, and right in my uh, first kind of undergrad experience, I got... Um, I stumbled, for lack of a better word, into an entrepreneurial lab, uh, a lab in the physics department, uh, where the prof happens to have, you know, happens to be working on commercial ideas. Uh, we had this notion that we could maybe create a spin-off to commercialize some of these technologies. I was the the, the technical founder, effectively, of that spin-out. Um, that went well. That set me on the entrepreneurial journey that then continued uh, through my um, uh, my grad school, ultimately through my PhD. Uh, spinning out uh, technology companies out of multiple universities in that area uh, and um, ultimately uh, selling the, the <laughs> selling uh, the last venture to um, uh, Dolby Laboratories in the U.S., uh, then uh, spending a, a few more years on the West Coast in uh, hopping around sort of between the Bay Area, Vancouver and L.A., uh, managing uh, what would become Dolby's video organization, uh, setting that up. Uh, and then uh, I moved to Montreal now 11 years ago. Uh, and in 2010, Tana Monch was set up, uh, founded it to really continue that, that exciting process of taking ideas out of universities, uh, commercializing them, building them into startups, financing. Uh, and that's, as you know very well, that's what we do at scale now. Wonderful. Uh, great place to start and just really... A phenomenal uh, experience that you can do some startups uh, while attending university, and I say uh, encourage others to attempt to do the same when possible. Um, so then let's talk about 5G a little bit. Uh, why does this concern people so much, and uh, why is it useful for conspiracy theorists, and is there any room uh, in tandem launch for 5G types of companies? Um, well, I mean, the, the first question is, is because people are, you know, not educated, right? Like the, the, so, uh, I honestly have no idea how 5G became the hobby horse of the conspiracy theory 
gang, other than that it happens to involve networks and cell towers and things like that. And so maybe people think that there's mental brain waves or whatever that impact them. Uh, 5G is just a communication protocol, right? Uh, it, it's like 3G, 4G, whatever. It's a numerically incremented communication uh, protocol for cellular communication. And 5G just happens to be around at a time when people are going a bit crazy all over the world. And so it became the devil. Somehow, I don't hear anybody talk about 3G. It seems like sort of weird that the conspiracy theories think that, you know, uh, cellular technology has been around for, you know, a few decades now, uh, publicly around, vastly used by everybody in their cell phone for at least a decade. Uh, and yet all the various protocols that sound exactly the same, just with a different version number in front of it, uh, somehow aren't part of the conspiracy. But then for 5G, magically, it's a whole different thing. Um, so the conspiracy stuff is just, I don't know, crazy land. I, I don't. You're, you're the you're the sociologist. You should you, know, you should understand what makes people go into mad thoughts. Um, but in terms of whether there's an opportunity for uh, 5G in town launch, uh, there is, and in fact, many of our companies are pursuing this already, right? So uh, Hela uh, working on uh, ultra low power uh, wireless communication uh, has a solution both for uh, Wi-Fi as as the sort of in in building uh, standard of choice and has a, a solution for 5G or you know, cellular sort of in, in general for um, uh, broad area coverage. Um, uh, same thing Lattice uh, with their uh, meta material antenna has both um, uh, a Wi-Fi based solution and a 5G solution. Uh, so we are we're actively engaged in this field. Um, the thing is 5G as a, as a standard is already sort of past the stage where startups can make a uh, make an impact on it, right? 5G is at this point an established protocol. It is locked in at the standards level. It is, you know, being utilized in the world. So the startups of ours that you see operating with 5G as a as an application are not the ones that are changing or enhancing the protocol because that's done, that's locked in. Uh, they're the ones leveraging the um, uh, availability of the 5G infrastructure, either by improving that infrastructure like, like Lattice could, or by um, leveraging its availability in the way that uh, Hela's backscatter technology uh, would. The, um, uh, you know, the real research work on the protocol itself, on the communication, uh, that would be, I guess, the future, 6G, 7G, 8G, whatever naming convention to come up with for the, for the next few tracks. Um, the only, coming back to the conspiracy thing, apart from people being crazy, the, it's not a conspiracy, but the only concern about 5G has nothing to do with the technology platform whatsoever. It has to do with the um, uh, technological capability around communication standards, right? So uh, telecommunication, uh, cellular communication is obviously one of those technologies that has uh, significant you know, national security implications, significant uh, data privacy implications, mm -hmm. significant industrial espionage, you know, implications and so forth. Yeah. Uh, that's nothing to do with 5G. Every Wi-Fi has that same issue and, you know, 3G had that same issue. But, you know, as one of the major communication backbones for most, you know, uh, countries, um, that, is an, that is an issue. And it's not, a, it's not really a conspiracy issue. It's just, you know, when uh, manufacturing power, technology power, intellectual property is concentrated on certain companies in certain countries for something that is a, a vital infrastructure component, then that raises all sorts of concerns. Now, 
uh, 5G is not alone in this, right? You uh, um, look at the semiconductor uh, world, right? Like uh, TSMC, you know, in Taiwan is uh, one of the few, uh, you know, kind of mass scale semiconductor capabilities left in the world. And, um, you know, Taiwan is under continuing, you know, geopolitical threat from, from mainland China. And so if at some point, uh, you know, there would be an invasion or some other political embargo or military conflict or something, um, the world is at significant risk of using uh, losing its uh, semiconductor access, essentially, right? Uh, and so that's just, and there's, there's dozens and dozens of examples like this, right? The UK is just finding out that kicking out immigrant lorry drivers, truck drivers, as we call them here, um, uh, maybe wasn't the best political decision. Uh, and so now they have fuel shortages, right? Like, so there's all sorts of technologies that are uh, relevant to national, I don't want to even say security, but national interest, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and having uh, having the ability to get hold of that supply, having an ability to have its, your own manufacturing capability is, is 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 in the national interest. On the other hand, uh, all the stuff costs money, right? And especially countries like Canada, I mean, we we can't really have uh, mass scale semiconductor fabs, or you know, can't really have mass scale five G development efforts uh, just by the size of the investment required. Uh, and so there's always a balancing act there that you have to to manage. Gotcha. So five G is I was under the impression that it was not yet sort of like fully in place, that there were some regulatory hurdles that were still needing to be sorted out. No, no. The infrastructure no. has been deployed all over the place. Um, the, um, the, the challenge is, I mean, so 5G is a protocol, right? So 5G isn't a, a thing. It's a communication protocol like Wi-Fi, like everything else. It's a, it's a way for devices to communicate with each other in a, in a, in a common language, right? Um, and so when people talk about the 5G ecosystem, they mean more than the protocol. They mean all the other stuff that surrounds that, right? So you need to have cellular towers that can you know, speak that language and broadcast signal in 5G. You need receivers, you need uh, you know, repeaters, you need cell phones capable of receiving, you need all sorts of other devices capable of receiving, you need um, kind of network backbone infrastructure that can utilize the speed of 5G. It does you no good if you have a, a 5G tower and a 5G capable receiver device when the, um, uh, the the internet backbone essentially that feeds that tower isn't capable of generating or transmitting content anywhere near the speed that 5G, I mean, you, it still works, but now you're back to the old speeds, right? Um, you also need applications, right? If you have like gigabit transfer type of capability, um, you, you kind of want to have something that makes use of that, right? I mean, you're probably not playing Tetris uh, and utilizing 5G to the fullest. Um, so, uh, you know, so, so when people talk about the, the emerging 5G ecosystem, they mean that whole thing. And that's going to take forever, right? It, it's right. going to be constant evolution. But as a, as a working, you know, protocol, the world is already full of it. It's just, it's going to grow in, in scale. Okay, so lots of opportunity there. Um, let's talk about SPAC. So what is it? What is it? What's the deal with SPAC? Uh, in what ways is it useful, if at all? And how is it different from IPO? So a SPAC is a special purpose acquisition company, uh, which is a fancy name that bankers dreamt up to find a different way 
to take companies public. So let, let's start with the root problem. So when, uh, when you have a privately held company, typically a startup, um, at some point you want liquidity, right? So your shareholders, whether it's your investors, your employees, your management team, everybody has put time and energy into growing this company and at some point everybody wants to get paid, right? And historically the most common, still today, the most common mechanism is just to get acquired at some point, but, but some companies just get too big for that, right? They're too big um, uh, or there's no obvious acquirer for them or um, the team wants to have liquidity does, but doesn't necessarily want to have a new boss. There's a variety of reasons. So when, uh, when that happens, you try to go public. The problem with going public in the traditional way is that, well, you have to go public. So you have to go to the public market and you have to convince kind of retail investors that your stock is worth owning and you need to get a, a banker to list you and kind of pre-sell a whole bunch of your of the equity that you're floating in, in the IPO uh, so that you have a bit of momentum coming out of the gates. And also you you have to sort of meet the requirement of the whatever stock exchange you're listing at, right? Um, so that, those are a whole bunch of hurdles. Um, the uh, many years ago, say about 20 years ago, I remember bankers pitching us reverse shell public listings. And that was the first step on the journey to a SPAC. So the, the idea is um, to basically say, hey, you know, if it's really difficult for your startup to go public, why don't you find a company that's already public, that's already publicly listed and already on the exchange and maybe has fallen on hard, hard times and has become a shell of its former self, has just sort of become a, a holding thing. And then the startup buys that shell, merges with the shell, becomes the shell, right? But all the stuff in the shell is basically the startup. And then lo and behold, you're listed on the New York Stock Exchange or whatever exchange that shell is listed at. So that concept Sounds is good. <laughs> that that concept no. is quite old and right. And uh, various people have done this. I mean, the obvious downside is okay. Now you've 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 made it through the logistical hurdle of being publicly listed. You yeah. you still you didn't, you didn't get any, you didn't get any money for it. Probably you paid a lot of money to lawyers, but you didn't right. You didn't float anything on the public market, and now. So your shares are liquid now, but there's no injection of capital into the company. And so that was always a problem because you're now public, you're, tr you're publicly tradable, but it's, it's really just a liquidity mechanism, not a fundraising mechanism, which the IPO is sort of both, right? The IPO allows you to put a bunch of money in the company. The, it allows you to get your shares a bunch of money. It puts a lot of money into your, into your sort of infrastructure. Um, yeah. And the, uh, a shell, a reverse shell listing doesn't quite do that. Uh, and so over time, people have come up with a variety of different ways to solve that problem. And the SPAC is sort of the most recently popular version of it. So what happened in the SPAC is that um, it basically is like a reverse shell type of operation, except the shell has a ton of money in it. And so here's how that comes into being. Um, somebody, typically a banker, goes out and says, I'm going to create a SPAC. I'm going to create, create an empty company. Um, that uh, may already, you know, find a publicly listed shell and acquires. Maybe they're not doing this, but I find a company with a clear path to IPO, um, but it, but an empty entity, an empty box that is somehow through one of these mechanisms has a path to public listing or is publicly listed. Right? I then go to a bunch of investors and ask them to put 100 million, 200 million, 300 million, whatever, into that empty shell. Uh, on, a, on an arrangement that is similar to what used to be called a search fund. So 
I'm a banker. I'm, I'm Bobby. I'm a genius banker. I go off. I get my buddies to give me $200 million. And I tell them, I'm not going to spend any of those $200 million because it's just me, Bobby, and, 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 and an assistant. Um, but I'm going to find a company that has the following characteristics. It's in this market. It has this much revenue. It has this kind of profile. It has a path to liquidity, you know, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and it could make use of $200 million. I then approach that company. I merge with that company. Same thing as in the reverse shell merger. I'm gluing these two together. The, you know, and so now the merger uh, achieves the public listing, but also it brought $200 million into the listing, right? So we, we, we come onto the public market and we do so with growth capital right on the balance sheet, right? So I'm not using the $200 million to buy the company. I, I merge for free and maybe I give some little piece of the management team or something, but I merge for free. And then that money goes on the balance sheet to scale up operations. Uh, and for that privilege, uh, you will pay me, Bobby, 200, you know, 20% typically as the finder's fee of this transaction. Um, and so then the, the capital structure of that new thing is, you know, 20% goes to Bobby, the, the broker, uh, something, I don't know, like 40% or something goes to the, the investors who put the $200 million in, depending on whatever, you know, ratio of prices are negotiated between the, in the, in the merger, between the company that you're merging with and the, the, the SPAC. And the other 40% are owned by whatever, whoever owns that, that previous company, the company that you merged into, right? And, uh, and then you're publicly listed, you have lots of money on the balance sheet and you're ready to go. So that's a SPAC. There are lots of variants of this scheme. The, the basic idea is to get path to public liquidity and money on the balance sheet. You can do something called a pipe. You can do it. There's, there's a whole bunch of different ways to do this. Um, but a SPAC happens to be popular. So that's what it is. What is it good for? Well, I mean, first order of business, it's good for the guy who gets 20% for arranging the marriage, right? So that's <laughs> the, 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 anything that is an acronym in finance is good for the finance person. There, there's a, that's a, it, now, that doesn't mean it's bad for everybody else. There's valid reasons to do a SPAC, and there can be all sorts of benefits for the others as well. But, but first and foremost, it's the, it's the broker who packages up the concept that will make the first win. Um, for everybody else, for the startup, it's a path to liquidity. For investors, it's a way to buy themselves a big chunk of a company. The um, SPACs were super popular like nine months ago or something, like just before, more than that, a year ago, a year ago, before the end, you know, before the end of 2020, suddenly there was this massive ramp of SPACs. As totally expected, a bunch of them cratered right out of the gate because turns out the company they merged with wasn't that exciting and the public market just doesn't care. Um, some made it, some cratered, some kind of limped along, uh, like with all of those things. Like at the end of the day, you can't make a company successful through financial engineering, right? Financial engineering can unlock some of the value, can allow liquidity of some of the value. But at the end of the day, the business actually has to work. Uh, and this is often the challenge with these kind of transactions. The business is in trouble. The business is not viable. Then no amount of listing it publicly or injecting money or doing a SPAC is, is going to help you. But there are a case, there could be a case where that is something good to do, but Absolutely. It, it's really not about the structure of the SPAC. It's about whether or not the company is interesting to people or not. Yeah. The questions you have to ask yourself is, so one, is your business viable? Two, does your business benefit from a large amount of extra money on the balance sheet, Right. Like if, you, if, you're, if you're sitting there and you're running a startup, your startup is profitable and it's doing well, um, 
getting $100 million from a SPAC onto your balance sheet, the question is, what do you do with it, right? Is it, right. Is it going to increase value proportionally? If not, well, why you're doing this, right? This is the same question you have to ask yourself every time you go fundraising, every time you take on venture debt, every time you take any kind of money in the company, right? You're mortgaging, you're giving away part of your company, part of your business, part of your, not just ownership, but control and so forth to get money. And, you know, very often the answer is absolutely. We need this money, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. If, if the answer is that, let's go. If the answer is no, not really, then that's maybe a feature of a SPAC that is not super helpful to you. And then the second question you have to ask yourself is, um, will we perform as a public company? You know, is this the kind of business that will do well in the public market? And again, the answer might be absolutely, this will be a rocket ship. Uh, and the answer might be, nope, no way on earth, this, um, this will crater, right? So do you have enough growth? Do you have enough top line revenue? You know, do you have enough um, hype around your business? Like all the kind of stuff the public market likes, right? If you're a, let's say you have a licensing business model, which has, you know, light on top line revenue, maybe, maybe strong on bottom line, right? Because you're, you have basically 100% margin. And so you might have some really nice bottom line numbers. But the market tends to focus on top line. Um, and so you don't have the top line revenue. That's a bad sign. If you have a, you know, a business model that is growing slow and steady and may not be as exciting to people that may not be well suited for the public market, but it is definitely an option. And there definitely are many companies that both need the money and have a, you know, kind of public profile that might work well mm -hmm. uh, as just as much as there are many where it doesn't work out and then they crash and crater. Okay. And so uh, what about all the crypto hoo-ha that's kicking around? Do you see a time where, because it feels like the banks are getting on board now. Like, do you think we're going to convert entirely well, to cryptocurrency? Yeah, I'm, I, I have to believe that I have my reservations about that field. So let, let, let's pull this a little bit apart. I think, I think part of the challenge is with crypto is that it, it mingles multiple concepts um, and then commingling ideas like this is just generally not a good idea for intellectual exercise, right? So it, it blends the notion. So first thing is, you know, a digital currency that makes exchange in the digital world easy, smooth, efficient, uh, maybe anonymous, uh, you know, there's, there's, you know, there's something there. Uh, I do think as we evolve as a planet, having a, a digital modes of transaction is a good idea. Now, you don't necessarily need the blockchain for this. And, you know, the anonymity is a double-edged sword. Uh, I was just reading... The pa Pandora Papers? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Right? So there's, there's, uh, there's a tax evasion issue to it. There's an illegal activity, right? I don't know how much of cryptocurrencies are used for, you know, child trafficking and other kind of drug dealing and whatever. So that's, that's kind of problematic. But, but at, a, at, a, at a more kind of higher level, sort of from a banking perspective, there's also challenges, right? So every, every week you read that some exchange made a mistake or something broke and suddenly like $100 million have disappeared somewhere. Uh, and then there's no recourse mechanism. Like I, the, uh, last week I was at an event and somebody talked about uh, cryptocurrency. Um, the, the speaker before me was kind of giving sort of a pitch for it. And when I was sitting down while waiting for him to finish, somebody next to me tells me, oh, there's this $80 million thing that somebody through a code error, somebody got wired $80 million in some kind of coin. And now the exchange is asking them to give it back 
right? And that's like the only recourse mechanism they have because it's just <laughs> it just just doesn't feel like that's a that's yeah. A, that's a way to it's like if you forget your right? password, like that's it. Eighty million, bye bye. It's like it, but it's over. Where, right? Where's my link to forgot my password? Yeah. So that that just doesn't feel like the thing that would hit the general population uh, in any credible way. So and and the and we know what the solution is to this, right? The solution to this is regulation, it's banking laws, it's pro policies, right? If if my bank makes a mistake and wires a chunk of money out of my bank account, like most of the time I won't even notice because they'll just, you know, flip a bunch of switches and then money is back. If I notice, right, I see it on my statement, I'll call them up and there's, you know, 10 layers of, of protections built in that, you know, it's virtually impossible for me to lose money in my bank, right? Um, uh, short of like a global economic collapse. I mean, even then, there is all sorts of, you know, backstops and, and safety nets. And so for the average person, that seems like a thing that we have evolved into for, you know, hundreds of years to have, right? So, so that's the banking part, which I think will stay around as a digital currency, but will get regulated to start looking essentially like, well, current digital currency. I mean, in many ways, the the U.S. dollar is is probably ninety percent a digital currency, and ten percent people are running around with bills and, yeah. and you know handing them to people. Um, the separate part for it is the um, the blockchain sort of backbone underneath it. The the ability to do trustless transactions and have you know continuous uh, authentication and 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 uh, bookkeeping essentially in the chain. That's a that's a really cool concept, and that can power a lot of technologies, not just cryptocurrency. the The challenge with it is that it was designed by somebody without any regard whatsoever for the environmental and economic impact, right? And, and so, the the notion of a distributed chain of verification of of logging, essentially, with what that is, is really cool. I I do think. In many ways, cryptocurrency have done a disservice to the blockchain because if the blockchain were just sort of an engine for innovation for other concepts to build on, I think long ago people would have implemented some of the more energy uh, viable versions, right? There, there's ways, there's a lot of research going on and having proof of work done without just burning energy on a, on a GPU. There's a lot of other ways to do this. And I think we have to go this way. And right now, what's hindering to go that way is that the well, I said the, the the cryptocurrencies basically have billions and billions of dollars of value hung up for somebody uh, and who has a vested interest in not switching over to a new chain or to a new structure or a new whatever, because the moment you do, it's all over, right? So we have this sort of legacy problem where extremely inefficient mechanisms are being used uh, that consume an insane amount of power. Uh, have an insane amount of economic impact. Much of the, you know, chip shortage we talked about earlier is in part of the result of people buying uh, GPUs all over the place to do, you know, big compute centers to compute uh, um, proof of work operations for for crypto mining. That doesn't feel like the right thing to do. That feels like uh, kind of the early days of the automotive industry where the internal combustion engine was just horribly inefficient and people started you know, having associating the black smoke coming out of the car with like a cool there and that's I have a powerful car because it smokes a lot. We we seem to be in that stage and environmentally that sucks. Um and also I think geopolitically that's not sustainable. We just saw 
last week or the week before, China basically clamping down on the entire uh, cryptocurrency sector. It was a baseball bat, basically. And um, there will be other countries like this that can't sustain the uh, the environmental and economic impact of the mining part. Forget the mm-hmm. cryptocurrency. China also has issue with the digital currency part. But separately from that, you can't have that much power consumption, basically, for you know, basically ledger keeping. Yes. Okay. So then the next one is let's talk about NFTs. So what's the deal with NFTs? And um, are are these do these have the same type of environmental or economic um, issues? Well, so anything that sits on top of the traditional blockchain approach with the build-in proof of work model uh, has the same environmental impact because for all of it you have to do the same kind of uh, processing unless somebody changes the underlying blockchain. So, so that's true for everything. NFT are like the third category. So I, I just said, so there's the digital currency part, there is the, um, the transactional kind of element, and then there is the speculative part, right? NFTs uh, live 100% on the speculative side of the equation, right? They, they serve, as far as I can tell, uh, no purpose other than allowing people to have uh, real world things, and I say things very generically, it could be like a, also a digital kind of asset of some sort, um, to have real world things go into the speculative world of digital cryptocurrency speculation, right? So obviously, as much as, uh, you know, uh, cryptocurrencies are supposed to position themselves as an exchange medium, you know, they're really a speculation medium right layout for, for many people, for most people probably. And so, the you know, the, the finance community and the cryptocurrency community has united in their desire to find other things to speculate with rather than just, you know, you can only create so many coins. There's already many of them, right? Uh, there's sort of a diminishing return. You create tons of coins and they just, you know, they just can't get that much mind share. But we know that humans have mind share for all sorts of other stuff. Humans have mind share for their preferred football team. Humans have mind share for their, you know, whatever their car, for artwork, for books, for all sorts of things. Uh, and so, you know, a bunch of clever finance people basically said, well, how about we could turn those things into coins and then we call them tokens, right? Uh, so it's a way to move the lens of speculation from, from just, you know, notional coins to other physical things. That one, for the life of me, I can't figure out what the purpose is other than speculation, right? It's, it's not like cryptocurrency itself, where at least you could argue there's an economic exchange medium and a transactional capability. But but for NFTs, I, I don't I don't know, I don't know what the other purpose is. Other than- I mean, uh, for for what I understand, it 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 does make sense, say for those folks who say are digital artists, for example, is the best example I can come up with, where they don't actually paint on a canvas, they do all of their art digitally. And in order to not have it stolen, or, um, you know, it's hard to keep, it's kind of like, it's hard to keep that train in the station or keep that, that in the box, um, and still get the credit um, that But isn't that, you that just, just copyright law? I mean, it's I mean, copyright law, that. but it's very, yeah, I mean, the Internet's the Wild West, right? And so it's like, how do you how do you distribute that in a way that still makes sure that you get paid your percentages down the road once it's exchanged hands a few times, I guess, something like that. Yeah, but so so copyright law has been around for a long time. And while it definitely has issues in its sort of details, 
um, it, it has been used very successfully by lots of people to monetize, you know, like the, like somebody sketches Mickey Mouse on a piece of paper that's been monetized in digital form by Disney for, you know, a long time, decades. Mm -hmm. decades. Um, and the, and smaller artists that drew, I don't know, some other, you know, cartoon creature on a piece of paper had that same challenge 50 years ago of how do they enforce if somebody just copies it in China. I'm not sure if the NFT stuff solves that because the NFT mechanism, it solves the lesser of the two problems. The lesser problem, the, the very, very, frankly, small problem in copyright is, hey, uh, is this your painting, digital or otherwise, right? Right. Um, it solves the authentication problems. Like, yeah, indeed, it's your painting, right? Uh, even that, it only solves it if it's actually your thing. If the moment somebody makes a derivative of it and assigns another NFT token to it just by changing the ears on the Mickey Mouse a little bit, you're shit out of luck. Uh, yeah. You know, so so it solves the like, truly easy part, which is direct reproduction authentication. What it doesn't solve at all is the enforcement, right? Like, so so what? You have your NFT thing and it's your little digital artwork and whatever, and uh, Disney just takes the thing and runs with it and puts it in the next movie. And now what, right? NFT is not going to help you one bit to make make Disney pay, right? Because at the end of the day, the asset is still decoupled from the token, right? The token is a is a ledger entry that says Bobby created this thing, and it sort of travels with your thing mm -hmm. as long as nobody takes it out of the NFT universe. The moment somebody reaches in and says, thank you very much for this painting. I'm going to put this now into the next whatever princess movie from Disney. Yeah. I mean, it, it snipped off from the token and you can bitch about it online and that's about all you can, you know, and, and which is true before too. Right. So <laughs> right. Yeah. I think the, the hard part about copyright has always been enforcement, not a, not a hard part both ways. It's, you know, having small players enforced to get their right royalties and also the part about big players excessively utilizing it to suppress, uh, you know, legitimate variants of their work and things like that, right? But that all the difficult part is around enforcement, not around authentication. Yeah, I mean, I think a great case of that is the Happy Birthday song, where I mean that's pretty hard to control, um, but somehow, some way, the family has managed to um, get get some form of attachment to it. Um, so then let's move on to the last one, which is the metaverse. So I'm hearing a lot of talk about the metaverse. I'm hearing people that are buying property in the metaverse and that, you know, they're getting their NFT set up in the metaverse. My, my interpretation is this is where once enough VR gets online and used enough that there's some kind of, shared space like the way that we all live in a city there's a shared space there what is your interpretation of this metaverse and you know will it be useful are like what do you, what are you hearing about it what do you know about it and do you think that this is where we're all going to like this is the next version of zoom kind of thing yeah it's the next version of second life right like it's it's the uh it's a way for people to have uh, digital avatars with all the things that they're used to having in the physical world, right? The digital version of property, the digital version of, uh, well, jobs, digital versions of, of books and artwork and things like that. The, 
the challenge was, and, and, and so let me, before I go on the challenge, the start was a positive thing. Clearly people have built up digital identities uh, over the last 20 years, right? So society is becoming more and more comfortable with the notion that you have a digital identity and that digital identity has a brand and it has, a, has friends and has, has a life in some sense, right? It has content that, you know, it's proliferated. And, and, you know, different people take that to different degrees. I, I don't even have a Facebook account, so I'm not the best. I'm on one end of the, of the reference scale. Uh, but, but some people live an entire life digitally that is fairly decoupled from their real world life. And most people are kind of in between where they have, a, they have their real world life and then they have a slightly glitzier version of it on Facebook and Instagram, of course, that looks, looks a bit better and easier, right? So yeah. uh, that, is, that is with us and that will continue and VR will naturally splice into that. The, um, the, the challenge and, and the metaverse concept will, I think, be great for artistic impression, will be great for, uh, uh, you know, the same way the internet has been phenomenal of getting marginalized groups to be able to exchange over long distances, that have been able to express thoughts and ideas and all this kind of stuff, you know, with the obvious downside that, you know, some of those thoughts and ideas are, are 5G conspiracy theory nutjob stuff, right? And so that also will proliferate, but as it does now. So that's all the good news. The, the challenge with the metaverse notion, so what metaverse adds to this is to say, well, all that's already happening, but there should be a genuine lifelike mapping, right? So there should be a virtual environment that actually has you, Bobby, or at least an avatar closely resembling you in it, and a house that you digitally live in that sort of, you know, resembles your house, not in the sense that it visually resembles your house, but economically resembles your house. Because if you, you know, in the limit, if everybody lives in the metaverse and your real life job makes you X dollars and therefore allows you to buy this property or do that stuff or live in that apartment, uh, well, in the limit, your metaverse thing won't be this escapist fantasy where you're a billionaire. You'll also need to be able to afford whatever, you know, whatever the yeah. equivalent there is, right? Like, so yeah. if, if you're if you're middle class in the real life, you're going to be middle class in the metaverse, and that makes it a lot less exciting, right? <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, that that's part of the challenge. Is that I think people people use the internet for in this sort of second life mentality for really two very distinct ways. There is the, you know, mapping of the slightly nicer version of your life into the internet. That's Facebook, that's Instagram. It's you, right? It's just you with some filters, you with some carefully curated snippets of your life. It's, it's your life, but you're adding a layer of kind of, you know, gloss code on it. Um, and then there's the hard escapist kind of view, which is, I am somebody on the internet, and I use this extremely broadly around, whether that's on forums or in video games or whatever, I'm somebody in the digital world that is completely different from me, right? And this is where I think the metaverse will struggle uh, because the people that are excited about VR, I suspect live largely in that second category or desire the aspects of that second category, but the people who want to monetize the metaverse live largely in the first category, mm -hmm. right? They want to sell you property and sell you bicycles and sell you cars and sell you experiences and sell you all sorts of stuff, right? Um, not just your like fantasy kink thing that you want to live out there. 
Uh, they, they won't, they're going to sell you that too. Somebody will do that too, but um, yeah. clearly already are. But, but that's not where the mega money comes in, right? The metaverse sort of mega dream is that we create a second economy that has the same, you know, similar economic scope as the, as, as the real life economy. Um, but that by definition requires broad buy-in. And if you have broad buy-in, you're going to work a middle-class job in your middle-class apartment grinding along in the digital universe. And that just doesn't feel as exciting as I think what a lot of people think about for VR. Yeah. Yeah. And I just imagine like, even if say we were working, like having a, a meeting at Tenem launch, if we're going to go have a meeting in the metaverse with all of our avatars sitting around a digital boardroom table, that, that, that means that we're all sitting at home or somewhere with goggles and a remote in our hands for literally hours and hours throughout the day. Like if, if, if things exist there in the way that they exist here, this is a lot of laying around with goggles on your head. Yeah. The, the, the limiting, you know, the limiting direction is either like the fat people in there, like floating chairs on the Wally movie, right. That just sit there, <laughs> you know, uh, or, or the matrix where you just jack right in and just don't even wake up anymore. Right. Yeah. Um, we obviously, a. Uh, uh, a bit far away from from either of those technical capabilities uh, we still need to actually eat and drink and do things and um but i also think humans um humans have needs that require physical interaction mm-hmm. uh, as much as uh, it might be gratifying to live out sort of in a fantasy world uh, again it's in the camp of living out fantasies Nobody fantasizes as much as I love our team. Nobody fantasizes about a meeting about budget planning with the Tom Munch team, right? Physically or in real life, right? And so the stuff that you crave is the social interactions. But but even at a more fundamental level, it's um, uh, human relationships. It is in relationship with your children. It is finding a partner. Finding and. Um, all of that is kind of difficult in the digital sphere, right? Like very difficult. I mean, short of sort of a true matrix-like plugging in where everything is controlled by that, um, uh, there's limits, right? And so um, people will want to go out and talk to real people, interact with real people and, and, and so forth. And that will kind of relegate the metaverse to being the escape hatch. Uh, which is fine. That's a great purpose for it, right? Entertainment, excitement, fantasy life, all this kind of wonderful stuff. But for most people, there will only be a, you know, a, a portion of their time they can devote to this. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense, actually. Okay, great. Well, Hoge, I think uh, that was about all the contested technologies that I could come up with. Um, so thank you so much for uh, giving us the lowdown on that. I know I feel a lot more educated so thank you so much, Helgi, for joining us and jamming about tech. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you very much to our loyal listeners. Your time is always appreciated. You can follow us on social media, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And don't forget, if you have a technical background and you want to create your own startup, hit me up on LinkedIn and I can tell you all about the incredible opportunities at Tandem Launch. And ciao for now. Thank you for listening. We hope you had fun and gained valuable insights. Why don't you subscribe to the Launch Podcast today? You can share the podcast, tell a friend, and follow us on social media. If you have a research background in tech and always wanted to build your own startup, then check out our website, www.tandemlaunch.com, and get in touch today.